0: Following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, we are in uh, what the church calendar calls the season after Epiphany. It's not a very creative name, but it's what we have. Uh, Epiphany was uh, January 6th, and we celebrated that uh, together on the 7th two weeks ago. And now, until we get to... um, the season of Lent will be in the season of Epiphany or Epiphany Tide or the season after Epiphany. Again, it's not, uh, not the most creative name the church calendar ever came up with, but it works. It kind of places us where we, where we are. <coughs> and we are spending the year in the lectionary, so it's not very very uh, often in our history that we've used the lectionary texts during this season. We often use them during Lent and during Advent. But we're trying to use them almost the whole year with very few exceptions this year, <coughs> Um. And so the lectionary assigns us some texts uh, each week, and we use those as the basis for our song selection and for our scripture readings and for the prayers that we pray sometimes and for the sermons that I preach. Uh, And so what I do at the beginning of the season, uh, the liturgical season, is I sit down and look at all those texts and compare what they all say and write out a little summary of what I think I might talk about on that week someday in the future, and um, occasionally my mind that day writes a check that my mind the later day can't cash. <laughs> um, so today's uh, sermon was going to be entitled Changing God's Mind, based on the, on the Jonah passage from today. Uh, the most, this is the summary I wrote. The most astonishing part of the story of Jonah might be not the whale, but the fact that God changes his mind. And uh, that might have been a really interesting sermon. We will never know. <laughs> Uh, For a variety of reasons, that just was not happening this week. I did some extra travel this week related to the prayer request that Anna offered a moment ago, and uh, that was weighing very heavily on my mind, and you know, just, I I, I suppose we all have uh, a day or a week at work where you just aren't on your A-game, and that that was this week for me. So, I I have two options when that happens. Option number one is fake it, and option number two is uh, make it, <laughs> uh, make do, and uh, I, c- I could probably have faked my way through that sermon today. It's a, the idea of God changing his mind is one that's, I think, very fascinating, and, and frankly, one of the most important uh, theological realities that we can find in Scripture it has all kinds of implications for all kinds of things in our, in our spiritual lives and in our, our practical lives, uh, but I didn't want to not do it justice. And so I'm choosing the second one, which is to make do. And so here's what happens today. <laughs> um, first thing we'll do is I'm going to take a little bit longer than I usually do. Sometimes I give you little announcement things at the beginning of the sermon if it's particularly important rather than waiting until the end when we're all like, um, well, let's just say ready to go. And uh, today there's a number of things that I w- would have wished that I could have told you that I wouldn't have had time to do. And guess what? Now I do. So I'm going <laughs> to give you a little bit more detail about those, when those pre-sermon announcements, which I hope will not be uh, boring to you. I don't think it will be. There's very exciting things that are coming up. We're going to do something that my friend Don sometimes does at his church, which is called Stump the Pastor. Um, basically, it's just a chance for you to ask your toughest theological question and to get some kind of pastoral response. Um, now, Don is at least ten times smarter than I am. And I already told you I'm not on my A game, so um, don't get your hopes up too high. (laughs) Uh, But if you have a question, I would love to engage with it right here in the room. Only one rule for Stump the Pastor. Only one rule for Stump the Pastor, and that's that you have to ask your question into the microphone so that it can be picked up um, for the podcast if we decide to put this on the podcast. Um, (laughs) And this might be a little bit hot, actually, I'm not sure about it. So... Dan's going to be our MC. <laughs> Dan, who, uh, who out there has a question for? Uh, oh, just, just so happens I have a question. What's that? Just so happens I have a question. Oh, imagine that. And then I'll MC. Uh, okay. Speaking. Gave you, right. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of the story of Jonah, you should be ready for this. Uh, Nineveh was. I'm not ready for <laughs> Nineveh was the capital of Babylon, which was not a very friendly neighbor of Israel. Um, I've heard this story interpreted that the whale part is sort of the afterthought. The much more important part of the story is that God sending Jonah to Nineveh is a precursor, a pre-telling of Jesus' central message of love thy enemy, love your enemy as yourself. Jonah going to Nineveh and praying for Nineveh when they didn't like Babylon very much. Can you think of other examples in the Old Testament that are pre-telling Jesus' gospel, Jesus' message like that? Oh, wow. Uh, That's a great question. Uh, Yes, I can. So the first one I would think of is a story in Genesis chapter 3, uh, the story of the fall. You're familiar with the, the, uh, the serpent in the garden and Adam and Eve and the, the temptation and all that stuff, the fruit, right? Um, theologians call this the Proto-Evangelion, meaning the first telling of the gospel. There's a moment, um, and I, I sometimes get the, the pronouns are confusing, so I sometimes get it wrong, but uh, when God is pronouncing the, the curse of the fall, basically, um, God says to uh, the woman and the serpent. And here's where the, I get the pronouns mixed up. I can look it up, but you can look it up as well, so I'll just let you do that. Uh, your, your offspring will be at enmity with, with her offspring, and you will strike at his heel, and he will crush your head. Right. Um, and so if you've ever seen the, the movie The Passion of the Christ, uh, there's, before you get to all the, the, um, the gory parts, there, there's this, the opening scene is this foggy, um, forest scene basically and a, and a serpent is slithering through and the sandaled foot comes and crushes the head of the serpent and that's uh, Christians we see in that story like this beginning idea that Christ is going to uh, conquer uh, Satan and so that would be one a lot of times um, Christians see in the story of um, the Akedah which is the binding of Isaac we call it the sacrifice of Isaac because we missed the point that he didn't get sacrificed um, uh, Jews call it the, uh, the Binding of Isaac where um, God tells Abraham to take his son up and, and sacrifice him and he like puts wood on his back and carries it up a hill and it takes three days and there's all kinds of echoes um, of the crucifixion story in that one um, so just more broadly I would say about that idea that the authors of the New Testament are they don't seem particularly concerned with like um, being super historical. <laughs> when they look back to the stories from the Hebrew Bible and, and, and interpret it in a Christian way, they often do it in ways that we go, what? That's, that's, come on. That's a stretch. I mean, if we're being honest, we look at it and say that. And the thing we have to remember is that um, even in the New Testament part of the Bible, we're in an ancient Near Eastern culture that does not think of history the way think we think of history, that does not think of, of narrative storytelling the way we think of it, and uh, is very comfortable with seeing something in an old story that, that it seems pretty obvious was not intended to be there, right? Um, and I think Christian interpretation of the Old Testament needs to both embrace that and be cautious about it, too, because once you've embraced it and you start interpreting all this stuff to, and you see Jesus in everything, we ought to see Jesus in everything. I see Jesus in everything, and not just the Jewish scriptures, but in all kinds of other things, um, places where you could argue nobody intended to show me Jesus, but there he is, um, I think it's important to do that in a way that honors God but also honors the dignity and personhood of the people who, who see it differently. Right? And so um, I guess the temptation is to say, well, look at that prophecy in Isaiah. That's definitely about Jesus. Nobody could ever see it any other way. And there's a whole school of Jewish scholarship that, that in fact does interpret it a different way. And it's, a, it's a, a type of arrogance that we sometimes develop that I think does not improve our... Our friendships or conversations with other people, and it actually doesn't improve our ability to share the gospel with them either. So, was that a long-winded enough question or answer to your question? We're going to do our best to balance the questions um, across, you know, uh, the spectrum of people in the room. So, uh, if if uh, now we've had two men ans- ask questions, I want to give women a chance to ask questions as well. So. Uh, I just had a question about what the Bible. Dwells into about the nature of prayer Because I think sometimes We get to this idea that when we come And pray to God it's like a laundry list of stuff Even if it's not stuff about ourselves If it's yeah. stuff about the world um, And lately I've been getting A little bit more and more into Richard Rohr And he talks about contemplative prayer And I'm even not still mm-hmm. certain About what's the, the I keep. I don't want to say the best mode For prayer but maybe A different outlook on prayer Because sometimes I feel like I still Even from I've childhood and now I'm almost 40 doing that laundry list and I don't like doing that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, what the Bible says about prayer, and I would maybe add on to that what the church has said about prayer too. Um, Because one of our values, as you know from being a member at Artisan is Roots and uh, we want to look to the whole tradition of the church to inform our understanding of how to read the Bible and how to practice our faith. So lots of Examples in the Bible of people going to God with laundry lists, <laughs> um, saying, God, help me with this thing or these things, right? Uh, lots of examples of people in the Bible doing things like saying to God, I meditate on your word day and night, right? So that's where we get uh, maybe a push toward the more contemplative forms of prayer. Um, uh, we, we, as you know, do a meditative prayer on the second Sunday of each month, and that's, that's a way of trying to help our congregation understand different ways of engaging God in prayer. Uh, I was talking to somebody just this past week about how prayer, um, the most obvious version of it, and the one that a lot of us, if we were raised in the church, were taught, is talking to God, telling God all kinds of things, whether it's asking or just telling or complaining or whatever it might be. All of those are valid. But then there's this whole other part of prayer that ought to be us listening to God. And that's much harder because it's not like, listening to the radio <laughs> where it's very clear what's coming across the airwaves and, and you can perceive it. Um, it's, it's much s- more subtle than that. And sometimes it, it sounds like silence. And becoming comfortable with silence is a really, really difficult task. Um, and so I often use the, the um, analogy of of belts in martial arts, right? (laughs) Like the white belt is the beginning level, right? And, and I think we all kind of are born with a white belt on that says we can cry out to God, even if we're, you know, even people who are not people of faith will sometimes in a moment of crisis cry out to whatever's there, you know, and that sort of comes naturally to us. But as you progress through, you know, you get your yellow belt and your green belt and your orange belt, and I don't know how the belts go. It ends at black belt, right? Um, But somewhere in the middle would be, you know, trying to, to do more listening prayer and more meditative and contemplative prayer. And I think the black belt level is this idea of praying without ceasing, which is something that the, the one of the, I think, Paul says in one of the epistles. Um, I'm sorry? Did somebody shout it out? Thessalonians. <laughs> yes, you're right. Right. Uh, now that you say that, <laughs> I remember. Dale's on our leadership team. Did you know that? Um, <coughs> pray without ceasing is one of, the, one of the very few things in the New Testament, actually, that's identified as being God's specific will for us. <laughs> Um, that you pray without ceasing, and um, does that mean that you you have this like always on conversational back and forth with God? I don't actually think it means that. I think it means that your whole life has been converted to a posture of prayer and that's that's kind of like ninja level prayer (laughs) so yeah that's a great question, thank you. Let's go to Dallas. Yeah, we'll come to you next. Um, After the events of yesterday, I'm a little inspired and I wonder how you would counsel a person who's hesitant to join the church due to its patriarchal um, tradition. Hmm. Okay, that is a good Women's March question. (laughs) How do you counsel some... Well, I'm probably the wrong person to counsel them, first of all, but... uh, Wow. Okay, so I think the most helpful thing I've ever heard anybody say on that is that, and I will not do justice to the exact words, but as Rachel Held Evans, who said this on Twitter a couple of years ago, um, just because patriarchy is the backdrop of Scripture does not mean it's the command of Scripture. And um, uh, our faith was born into a, a world where, where men ruled everything, and that was kind of the expectation. And you see that reflected in, in uh, just kind of passively in the narratives that occur and the way things shake out. You sometimes see it um, reflected in the language of the Bible. And I think that we can find hope against that in the, in the trajectories of the Christian tradition, both in the New Testament where, you know, the same person who says that a woman shall not pray with her head covered <laughs> says that when a woman prays in church, she should do it this way, uh, and is the same person who says there's no longer Juno or Greek or slave or free or male and female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. So in the story, in the in the scriptures itself, we see something changing and being uprooted there. It doesn't go as far as we want it to, um, but I think we can see in the trajectory where um, this is an evolution of our thought and of our understanding of who God actually is and what God wants the world to be like. Um, And if you look at the story historically of the early church, the uh, the ways in which Um, broad conversion to Christianity started to change the world for marginalized populations, including women, um, it gets pretty incredible. So you can read about that in a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Uh, And I don't think that he's a religious historian. He's just a secular historian who sees in the rise of Christianity all kinds of freedoms emerging in the world of its day. So there's hope there. And I think it's also important to remember that the, the nature of Christian faith itself is that and I, you hear me talk about this very often, it's already and not yet, right? The work the, 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 the world changing work uh, of Christ has happened and the resurrection has happened and um, I think the, the rest of history, you know, as long as, as long as the Lord tarries, as you know, people would have said in my church growing up and in your church growing up, um, is getting a little closer to God's ideal. And I talk about how there's this future perfection that God will bring about when all things are made new. And part of our task as Christians is to, is to imagine there's a rope tied around it and to pull it a little bit closer to the present. And I think that's part of bringing the kingdom of God into the world. It's not just converting people and, and um, getting them on the path to heaven. It's also um, spreading this beautiful truth and reality that is inherent in the message of the gospel. So um, I don't know how much hope that would offer somebody uh, in that situation, but um, that's what I have. And then I would say uh, read and listen to uh, women theologians. (laughs) Um, Next. And could you tell me your name? Uh, Trish. (laughs) Uh, Do you think that it's possible to believe in evolution and also be a Christian? I sure hope it is. <laughs> um, that's a great question. Thank you. Uh, yes, I do think it's possible, and I do. Um, this is one of those things that, that uh, has a, you know, there's probably a range of interpretations, even here in this room, which is maybe a more homogenous room than we would, would want it to be to reflect the full kingdom of God. Um, so uh, this is the kind of thing that, that stirs up a lot of passions, and... So you know we'll tread somewhat carefully on it, but um, I I do think it's possible, and I will give you a brief starting point for where you could <laughs> where where that how that could be true. Um, the stories of creation, and there are more than one in the early parts of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, um, seem to me to have a I'm going to use a word that might be sort of inflammatory for a second, but I'll explain it. They seem to have a mythic quality to them, right? I don't mean mythical in the sense that, oh, that's, a, that's baloney, it's not true. I mean mythic in that it's a, it's a truth story. Um, so, for example, uh, what's, the, what's the name of the first, the first man in the garden? Uh, Adam. What does Adam mean in Hebrew? It means person. It means guy, right? His name is literally Guy, um, that's that's kind of a clue to me. This might be a, a representative kind of character. Um, and if you read, in my opinion, you can't read Genesis 1. Thank you, Del. And Genesis 2. Is that sparkling or still water? <laughs> 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 in, in my opinion, it's very difficult to read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and see that these are like the the language changes, the name of God changes, the, the way the story in, develops happens in different ways, and I think you kind of have to do some backflips to make them m- match with each other. Um, now, listen, I've been guilty of doing some uh, hermeneutical and interpretive backflips in my day in the scriptures. I'm not really trying to be mean to anybody. Um, but I think a, 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 a better reading is to, to think of these as uh, the story of how God created the universe. Um, how, like with a capital H, not that it took six days and then he rested for one, but, um, but that people were created in God's image and that God cared about all of this and saw that it was all good and that God gave us uh, a, a charge to care for the world and that kind of thing. Those are all the principles of, of the creation story that you can draw out of it um, without having to dwell too overlong on the details of it. Um, now, there, there are some other well, there's a lot of other theological concerns that come up there, and of course, this is—you know—it was the subject of a very public debate a year or two ago with Bill Nye and um, Ken Ham. And um, for me, speaking as a person who kind of got my mind around that c- quite some time ago, it, the whole thing now seems like a distraction from what really matters to me. But I recognize that it's not a distraction for people who are really struggling with it and wrestling with it. And I want to honor people who have, you know. Uh, who are still kind of in the midst of that challenge. But the short answer is yes. And the, the better answer is uh, yes, but I can't quite do it justice right now. Yeah, yeah please do. Would, do you think it would help? Like, can you read the Bible and not take it so literally? Do you think that, like, that would help believing in both? Yes, thank you. That, Trish, that's just a great follow-up question that it should have been part of my answer. <laughs> um, I often say the Bible is not a book, it's a library. Right? So the Bible contains many different books written by many different people across many different times in many different places in the world. Right? Not, not all around the globe, but you know, in, the, in its place. Um, and I, I don't think it's wise to demand that we read <coughs> the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, the same way that we read the creation accounts in Genesis, um, uh, the same way that we read the Proverbs and the Prophets and um, all that kind of stuff. So the Bible is full of all kinds of things. It has some uh, historical content, it has some wisdom content, it has a lot of poetry in it, and... It has these uh, creation stories in it. And I would, I would make the argument that the creation stories are more like the poetry than like the historical content of the Gospels. Right? So uh, paying attention to the genre of literature that you're reading when you're reading the Bible is crucial for understanding it well, in my opinion. And it doesn't make the Bible less true or less um, inspired or even less authoritative. It just makes it, uh, makes it a different type of thing and uh, makes us want to read it in a different way. Uh, In my opinion, it makes it more beautiful and more rich and more robust and um, more of a gift to the church. So um, uh, thank you for that follow-up question. What questions do we have? Yes, I see a question in the back. Oh, do you want to do Tiffany first and then you can... I told my kids earlier this week, well, you'll just have to ask Pastor Scott that. So now I'm going to ask you instead. <laughs> we are having a conversation at dinner about hell. And do the bad people really go to hell? And am I going to go to hell? <laughs> and they stumped their mom, so your turn. Oh. So the most astonishing thing about the story of Jonah... <laughs> Might not be the whale, but the fact that God changes His mind. Whoa! <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Well. The, here's the most serious response I can give to that, uh, in, the, in brief form. The most serious and brief thing I can say is the truth is, I don't know, okay? Um, which, uh, which infuriates some people, just me saying that just now. Some people are mad, they're like, I'm out of here, right? Um, but the, I don't think it's actually possible for any of us to know with certainty what happens after we die. I think the scriptures point us in uh, a direction, and um, we certainly have lots of teaching uh, throughout church history that can give us some help. Uh, but none of us having been there, it's kind of hard to, to know with certainty. And so I think it's important to have a certain amount of humility about things that we, don't, that we can't fully understand, okay? Um, I was just listening to a podcast this past week with um, Penn Jillette, who's, uh, in addition to being an illusionist magician, is a, an outspoken atheist. And he said, uh, one thing that scientists say that kings have never said and priests have never said and popes have never said is, I don't know. And I was like... I don't know what he's talking about because I say that about twice a day, Um, but I suppose it's true that more broadly speaking in the church we've been reluctant to say those words and so I'm saying them now. Um, The other thing I would say, uh, you tell your kids they didn't get an answer, but um, the other thing I would say about hell is that having been raised in in a... church culture where it was the number one thing that you had to care about where it was the main reason that you would choose to follow Jesus where it was the only motivation you had to behave or to do what was right or to work to strive for holiness um, I find it uh, 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 unconvincing and ineffective and not a good basis for any of those things I think there's much better reasons to follow Jesus than you're worried that um, you know you're going to get smited smote Um, (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry. I know it's not a funny topic, but um, (laughs) I think there's much better reasons to strive for holiness than worrying that you're backsliding and that you've just slid too far past this invisible line that you don't know quite where it is, but you better be careful and um, be extra good just in case. Uh, I think there's all kinds of better reasons to trust Jesus with our life and to follow him with everything that we have and to believe in the resurrection and to live our lives uh, as if um, the kingdom of God arriving on earth depended on our work uh, while at the same time trusting that there's nothing we can do absent God's power. Uh, All of that stuff, I think, is better motivated um, in other ways. So... um, Beyond that, I would s- I would suggest that they read a lot of books which are not age-appropriate. <laughs> this is my answer when adults ask me this question. Um, you know, there's very recently, not very recently, but in the last several years, there was a very big controversial book by Rob Bell called Love Wins that kind of argued for a, um, you know, a non-conscious, eternal, conscious punishment version of, of the afterlife. Um, I think there's a few kind of interpretive problems with that book, but I, but I actually think it's a, a helpful addition to the conversation. There's, of course, all the responses to that book that um, come down in various places as well. Uh, so, if you read the book of Acts, which is the story of the church's explosion into the Mediterranean basis, Basin um, following the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles' preaching is entirely, 100% absent of any mention of hell. Um, which is the reason that my preaching usually is as well, because if it's good enough for uh, Peter and Paul and the rest of them, it's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, you run into some difficulties with some other parts of the New Testament, including some things that Jesus said, if you go all the way in that direction. But I'll be perfectly honest with you. It's something that I have not figured out for myself and because I don't consider it to be like um, an ultimately crucial way of uh, understanding my faith in the world, I, I have worked on other things. Which uh, I suppose that, that maybe is proof of, of where my heart might actually be on it. Oh, okay. That was not much good, was it? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yes. Now, Tim. Um. So why do we pray to God to lead us not into temptation? Because my understanding and belief is that God would never tempt us. So why do we pray to him to lead us not into temptation? Yeah. And then the second part of that is, um, why is the bridge at an angle on some guitars? <laughs> <laughs> uh... the second one has to do with intonation <laughs> the string length has to be different for the different string gauges in order for it to be in tune up and down the neck is that right? okay, thank you <laughs> um, that's a great question, uh, lead us not into temptation we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, why do we say that? Does, you know, is God actually leading us into temptation? that we have to ask him not to do that? Um, I think that's probably a translative problem right? Uh, I think my my guess is that there are better ways of translating uh, what that is. And that came from the Bible when Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. He said, you know, first of all, don't do it like this, like the Pharisees do, um, <laughs> which is how almost all Christians pray now. <laughs> um, but do it like this. Say this instead, you know, our Father, and so on. He, reads the, he, he gives the whole thing right there. And I think um, probably there's... I'd have to do some research into the actual workings there, but my guess is that the the, the language doesn't really um intend to convey that god would lead us into temptation um, but rather that the prayer is for god to protect us from temptation and uh, you may have seen recently actually pope francis suggested a rewording of the our father as the roman catholics would call it and i can't remember what his preferred wording would be but it was based on the same kind of thing um yeah and it has been changed in some yeah I actually thought about put giving, getting the Pope Francis version on the screen for us to use once in a while. Maybe we'll still do that. Um, excuse me. So my guess is, as with many things, that that's kind of an interpretive thing that was made, uh, an interpretive decision that was made early on and then became part of liturgies and then it's like, don't touch that. <laughs> you know, it's it's a sacred cow now. The, the, the way we translate those words is a sacred cow, where maybe if anything should be a sacred cow, it should be the original words themselves. So that's a great question. Thank you. Anna, oh, can you wait for the mic just so we have you on the recording if we need to? I know this is kind of one of the um, Christian questions' greatest hits, so you're probably sick of answering it. But um, if God is all-powerful and loving and everything, why does everything still suck? Mm, yeah. Yes, it is one of the big questions. Uh, it's one of the big obstacles that many people have to coming to faith in the first place and believing that God is there. Um, you know, that's, that podcast I mentioned earlier, Penn Gillette gave that, that whole kind of um, uh, argument against God's existence, that if God is real and powerful and is doing nothing, then He's not worthy of worship, and if God can't fix the problems of the world, then he's not worthy of worship. And so, either way, it's kind of like the uh, the atheist version of Pascal's wager, in a sense. But um, my answer to that actually would probably have come through in the sermon that I gave today, if I if I'd given the Jonah sermon with God changing his mind. Um, I I. C- this is, this is a theological concept that is very deep and multi-layered and has lots of implications for all kinds of things about how we believe and what we do. So I won't even come close to doing it justice right now, but the short version uh, that I would try to give you is kind of a C.S. Lewis-ish kind of thing, which is to say that um, for, for our love of God to be meaningful, it has to come from real, actual human freedom which is to say God can't be doing the cosmic chessboard thing and moving everybody around everywhere God wants them to be at every, every second. And every good thing and bad thing and in-between thing that ever happens happens because God pressed the you, know, the, you know, the tornado button or the cancer button or the, you know, Tom Brady and the Super Bowl button or the, you know what I mean? Like all these horrible things. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, I shouldn't make light of that. Um, But what I think is actually true of the world is that that we have real meaningful freedom. And the way we exercise our freedom is way more often than I wish it was to cause harm to ourselves and to others. And so the whole world is messed up in that way. Now, I would add into that, and this is where things get a little bit kind of weird and harder to explain, that there is a spiritual component to that as well, that there are spiritual presences in the universe that are acting against us, and that they have some degree of meaningful freedom as well, uh, and that um, God just doesn't, like, control everything. And so because I don't believe God controls everything, I don't, uh, I don't blame God for everything. Um, now, some people don't buy that. Some people don't buy the basic, the basic premise, which is that God doesn't control everything. Some people can just can't get their heads around that. And so they reject that, and they have to come to a different way of understanding suffering. Um, some people maybe are a little bit more nuanced, and they say, well, okay, be that as it may, but uh, it's not much difference between God can't fix this and God is choosing not to fix it. You know, And that's where I think it gets really uh, painful and hard to process. Um, But on my best days, I'm able to process that by saying um, it's part of our calling as God's agents in the world to, to, um, to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring an end to suffering wherever we can find it and can do something meaningful, to tear down systems and structures that cause more suffering in the world, to care for our world in a way that natural disasters don't, you know increase exponentially all of a sudden and, and all of those things and many other things um, at my best I feel like suffering is a call to um, a call to work on God's behalf in the world and then secondarily I do think that suffering places us in a meaningful and importantly, spiritually important way in solidarity with Jesus right? just as Jesus' suffering places him in solidarity with us I mentioned this in the sermon at Baber last week a little bit it's not to say, like there's, there's even texts in the Bible that say rejoice in your sufferings. And I, I can't quite get myself to say that quite exactly that way. Except that I think what it means is your suffering somehow um, increases your knowledge of, of who God is. God is the self-emptying, eternally loving being. And um, your suffering places you in solidarity with other people who've suffered. And therefore creates in you an empathy that gives you more strength and more power to make a difference in the world. Um, we've gone way off the original question, uh, you know, that, that's a challenge to God's existence, which is a very common one, but it's not, it's common because it's, it's good. It's hard to address, so don't feel bad asking that question. Um, you can feel bad that I didn't answer it very well, though. (laughs) Uh, yeah, um, why don't we, I think we, you want to, let's see how long it takes me to answer this question, then we'll come to you afterwards. Is it Deborah there? Okay. Going back to the first question, if there's no hell and no eternal damnation, then what was salvation through Christ for? Mm, That's a good question. Thank you for that, Deborah. Um, So, there are a couple of ways to answer that. I'm try to do this concisely in a way that honors your question. Um, I can tie it into this last question and the way I was answering it at the very end. Uh, if we are being saved, and that is the, that is the way the apostle uses the language uh, in at least one case in the New Testament, rather than saying we have been saved, says we are being saved. Um, it is a way, uh, a, a process of conformity to the image and likeness of God which was lost in the fall you know whatever we however we may want to kind of interpret the meaning of that story in Genesis three and uh, the import and implications of it that follow um, if we are um, being conformed into the the likeness of Christ, then one of the purposes of our salvation is to to do what I was just talking about to be part of bringing about an end to suffering um, to be uh, able to share God's bottomless, endless, complete and total love with the world uh, in ways that um, that become truer for us as we grow in our faith. Um, it's a, uh, a way of being um, drawn into this collaborative work that I believe that we are called to do with the creator of the universe, which is to be part of the process of, of Creating a new heavens and a new earth, which is how the, the New Testament talks about what happens when Jesus returns. Um, it's uh, our, our individual salvation is to be given to the salvation of the whole world, and that happens not necessarily by um, spiritual fiat or by kind of magic wandish sort of things. Although, finally, it won't happen without God's work, obviously. But it happens by us um, kind of putting our shoulder into it and doing the work of bringing about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, I sometimes use this image um, of of a future perfection that we are promised that is not yet there. And imagine that there's a rope around it, and we have hold of the rope. And one of our tasks as people who are being saved is to bring that future perfection closer to the present, um, and so, uh, all of those are reasons to um, to celebrate the idea of salvation and to understand having been saved from uh, ourselves and to having been saved from the the evils and pains of the world um, that doesn 't require uh, an, a belief in uh, sa- being salv- saved from an eternal conscious torment um, which Uh, there are problems with that as well as regards God's nature, I think. So um, that may not be a very good answer. I've said that a few times already this morning. I feel like maybe I didn't do great justice to your question. Um, But one way to study that would be to follow the trail that I laid out a little bit for Tiffany, which is to look at the preaching of the apostles. What reasons did they give for people um, in the book of Acts in calling them to conversion to salvation what what, what were they told that they were being saved from if not from hell because as I said the apostles don't mention that so um, thank you for that question and I wish I could have done a better job with it I think we probably do need to call it there sorry Mike you didn't get your question Um, but thank you for your amazing questions we had great questions earlier and great questions here and uh, hopefully the pastor wasn't um, stumped so badly that you never want to be here again. <laughs> uh, it's been um, actually a really beautiful um, day with you at Artisan so far. And a big part of it has been your inquisitiveness and your, your sharp minds and your soft hearts. And I'm grateful for all of you for that. So uh, let's pray together and then we'll take communion. God, we give you thanks on this day for uh, the ways that being a community with each other uh, sharpens our hearts and minds, um, prepares us to do the work that you've called us to and helps us to understand the scriptures more uh, or at least be drawn into um, the task of coming to understand them more. And we pray as we continue to worship you in song and at the table that your presence would be real here among us, that we would know who you are more and more with each passing day and each passing moment. And we give you thanks for this community of faith in Christ's name. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.